So please remain standing as I read from these ancient words this morning. In Acts uh, chapter 13, beginning at verse 13 to verse 33. And may the Spirit of God quicken our hearts to hear what he would have and what he would impart to each of us through the hearing of these words. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? But I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming the sand, one, the sandals of whom, of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, he fulfilled them, though, by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come, had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus also, just as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. May God bless this reading of his word this morning. Thank you. 
Let's pray together as we always do when we come before God and His Holy Word. Our God and our Father, we do praise You and we do give You thanks for the Gospel that is revealed and contained in Your Word. We pray this morning that as we, as we come to consider all that You have revealed to us here, that You would give us Your help. Holy Spirit, be with us and illumine these words that You have breathed out, that You have inspired, that You have revealed to us and help us understand who Jesus is and help us revel in the great news of all that he has done for us. And Father, help, help all of this truth to transform us specifically by causing us to revel in Christ, to exalt Christ, to magnify Christ, and Father, to worship him even more and more and more. And so glorify yourself and your people and through your word as you feed us and nourish us and encourage us and transform us when we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'll remember back with me to last week, we began to dig into this sermon of Paul's that is recorded here in Acts chapter 13. This is not, remember, by any means the first sermon that Paul ever preached as a Christian, but it is the first one that we have record of in the Word of God. And we started to look at it by looking at the the ultimate point last week that Paul is aiming at in this sermon, which as we saw last week is that Jesus Christ is the promised and prophesied eternally begotten Son of God, who is God the Son. And last time we did our best at least to unpack what that phrase, Son of God, means in terms of who God's Word reveals Jesus to be. Now if you weren't here for that message last week, you're going to need to give it a listen on the website because it is all of the great fullness and richness and eternal mystery of that awesome reality that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God the Father. So both distinct in person and fully and eternally equal in substance and in essence and in nature as God. Both eternally the very essence of the one true God and eternally begotten of God the Father as the person of God the Son. It is that great, infinitely wondrous reality of the nature of the Son of God that lies at the heart of what Paul proclaims him to be and to have done in this sermon that's recorded for us here in Acts chapter 13, which Paul preached in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And so as I told you last week, what Paul's doing in this sermon, in verses 16 through 33 and beyond even, which we'll get to next week, is he's proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the promised eternally begotten Son of God, and he's doing it by showing that in Jesus Christ, three things are true. First, in Jesus Christ, all of the sovereign purposes of God for all of human history come to a glorious culmination. Everything that the world is all about, everything that history is all about, everything that your life in this world is all about, is all about Jesus. And then second, in Jesus Christ, all of the divine 
promises of God are gloriously fulfilled. And we're going to look at those two today. And then thirdly, which we'll have to take up next week, in Jesus Christ, all of God's redeeming work is gloriously accomplished. Those are the three points Paul wants to drive home. And they're all possible. They're all real because of who Jesus is as the Son of God who is God the Son. So having seen last week what that means, what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, this week what we're coming to see is that only by being that, only by being who and what He is, can He do all of these glorious things. Can He culminate all of the triune God's purposes for all of history? Can He fulfill the triune God's promises and all of the prophecies that God has given throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And only by being the Son of God, as we'll have to look at next week, can Jesus Christ accomplish all of the triune God's redeeming will and redeeming work in creation. No one could ever possibly do all of those things who was not the begotten Son of God, who is God the Son. And so today we're going to have time to look at the first two, the culmination of history, the fulfillment of divine promises and divine prophecies and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, next week we will focus in on the third one and see from Scripture how Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, accomplishes all of God's redeeming work in us and ultimately in all of creation. But today let's dig into Paul's sermon here. And let's focus together on verses 16 through 33 and even beyond. Let's look at 16 through 37 and see how God's Word proclaims that He is the culmination of history and the fulfillment of all divine prophecy and of every divine promise that God has ever made. First, verses 16 through 22. Paul preaches. Paul proclaims with all the full weight of the authority of the Word of God at his back, that in Christ Jesus, and that only in Christ Jesus, all of the sovereign purposes of God for all of human history come to a glorious culmination. And of course, at the beginning, at the core of that proclamation, is the belief and is the insistence that history does, in fact, have a purpose, right? That it's going somewhere. And that it's not just going somewhere randomly, it's going somewhere purposefully. It's going somewhere deliberately. It's not just that history is a random sequence of purposeless, indeterminate, naturalistic events. That's what many people in our postmodern age have come to assume, have come to presuppose. That history is not being guided, that history is not being governed, that history is not deliberate or purposeful, that it's just random. It's just what it is according to the natural events of this world. And make no mistake, that belief is in fact a presupposition that there is no God who is sovereignly guiding history according to his divine will. People believe that because they want to believe that the only things believable are the things that you can prove and demonstrate in a lab. But what you can't demonstrate in a lab, what you can't prove empirically, is that there is no God. 
And so it is a self-contradictory belief system that they hold to, which insists that history has no purpose. What they believe is that it's all just chance. It's all just fate. And it's not being governed by the sovereign will and hand of the almighty God. Now, you know, of course, that God's word proclaims that it is only the fool who says things like that. That it is only the fool who says in his heart that there is no God, right? Psalm 14, Psalm 53 both testify to that. And we can see how true that is really, really easily by seeing how inconsistent and how self-defeating and how hypocritical their reasoning is that gets them to this conclusion that there is no God and that therefore there is no sovereignly determined purpose for history and for life in this world. The way, see, that unbelievers justify their unbelief, their disbelief in God is by starting out on a philosophical foundation that insists that the only things that are reasonable to believe are things that have sufficient evidences to warrant belief in them. And evidences means things that we can detect with our five physical senses and then arguments that are made and theories that are formed based on the data that our five physical senses gather. And of course, that's obviously great for certain beliefs that we hold to, right? Like, for instance, that water is composed of two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen molecule. We, we believe that because we can see and test that and prove that. But see, here's the problem. The problem comes when people insist that those are the only kinds of beliefs that are believable. And that the biggest... And see, here's the thing. The biggest and most obvious problem with that kind of mindset, with that kind of belief system is that the foundational claim itself, that all reasonably believable ideas have to have evidences backing them, that belief itself doesn't have any evidence backing it that you can see, that you can hear, right? How do you prove with evidences that your eyes or your ears or your hands can can observe? How do you prove with evidences the idea that the only believable beliefs are the ones that have evidences? (laughs) What scientifically provable evidence is there that backs up that belief? There is none, right? You can't prove that claim by the standard that that claim itself insists And makes that everything believable has to be proven by. And so what does that mean? It means that that belief system itself, that naturalistic, evidentialistic belief system itself, insisting that only the beliefs that are believable are the ones backed by evidences, it is by its own standard. Unbelievable. Self-contradictory. Self-defeating. From the get-go. And therefore, by its own definition, it is irrational to insist that the only beliefs that are believable are the ones that have evidences backing it. And of course, most people who hold to that belief system don't hold to it very consistently, do they? Because it doesn't account for the way that things, many, many things really work in this world. And for all kinds of beliefs 
that all of us actually hold in this world. There are lots of beliefs that everyone holds to that don't have any evidence or or any empirical arguments in support of them. For example, and most obviously, the reliability in the first place of our five senses, right? What evidence do we actually have that what our eyes see and what our ears hear and what our brains interpret is actually an accurate representation of the world around us? There's no proof of that, but we all believe it. We all believe it, even though we don't have any evidence to prove that our eyes and our ears and our brains aren't actually deceiving us or being deceived all the time in terms of what's actually out there. And see, this goes for all kinds of beliefs that we just call basic beliefs. One Christian philosopher named Mitch Stokes illustrates it this way. I love this. He uses the example of someone throwing a hammer at your head. If a hammer is flying through the air straight towards your face, you don't require evidence, right? To believe that what your eyes are seeing and what your brain is interpreting is actually a real hammer flying at your head. You don't need to formulate some argument in your mind, right? You don't need to stop and run experiments that prove that your perception of the hammer is real and accurate, right? You just go, hammer, and you die. Because lots of things that we believe in this world are basic beliefs like that. And they don't require these these evidences to reasonably and realistically believe. And see, if you try to insist that every believable belief does, in fact, need all of this evidence, then here's what happens. Here's what has happened in the history of people trying to maintain that worldview very, very consistently. What happens is that very quickly they spiral into a massive skepticism about everything in the world because they quickly realize that, that you can't really believe anything. How do I know if my sensory perceptions are accurate? David Hume asked. Rene Descartes asked. Maybe they're not. Maybe the world that I think that I'm seeing isn't really real. Maybe I'm being deceived by evil beings. Maybe we are all in the matrix, right? So David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, became absolutely obsessed and consumed with thoughts like those because he stood on this foundation that insisted that the only things that he could believably believe were the things that had evidences backing them up. And he he realized that, that, that from the foundation itself, there was no evidence for what he was seeing and hearing and observing. And so he concluded that almost nothing is believable. And see, then that led... Next step to the philosophical belief system known as existentialism, which insists that not only can you not really believe much of anything, but that in fact nothing actually means anything. Everything is purposeless. Everything is meaningless. Here we sit, John Paul Sartre wrote, right? All of us eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence. And really, there is nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. That's the foundation of what he believed. 
And from that follows the conclusion that has gotten us to where we are in this world today, that there is no actual basis for morality, no objective right and wrong in the world, that there is nothing that is objectively beautiful or good, that you just get to existentially and individually interpret for yourself and decide for yourself what's right and good and beautiful and true in this world, because there is no believable, provable, demonstrable source outside of us that makes things objectively right and wrong, good and bad, beautiful and ugly. Now, if you follow this way of thinking, this sort of naturalistic belief system consistently and, and insist that the only believable beliefs are the ones with evidences backing them up, this is where you end up. Nothing's believable and nothing's meaningful. You end up in complete irrationality. You end up in skepticism and you end up in meaningless despair. You end up insisting that history has no purpose, that existence has no meaning because it isn't defined or directed by God who is sovereign over it. You end up saying with Descartes, the only thing that matters is I think. I am a thinking thing. I can't trust what my eyes are seeing. I can't, all I know is that I am a thinking thing. And you could, you could ask him to take one step further and go, how do you even know that, Renee? But he says, I think, therefore I am. That's all I can know, right? What kind of existence is that? See, all that to simply say it really is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God who created this world and who is sovereignly governing it by his perfect world because claiming that requires this hypocritical, self-contradictory, self-defeating belief system that ultimately leads to massive skepticism and meaningless and despair. Like standing in front of a never-ending series of flying hammers saying, there is no hammer, there is no hammer, there is, after getting hit in the face over and over and over by hammers. Just so that you can insist that things without evidence can't be believed. What, What a foolish way to live. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. David says in Psalm 19, it's a big cosmic hammer hitting you in the face saying God exists. His divine power and his invisible attributes are clearly seen in all that he has made. Paul says in Romans 1, belief in God is as basic as belief in flying hammers. Unless we suppress that belief in order to justify our own sin and unrighteousness. There is an almighty sovereign creator who has revealed himself in creation, in his word, and in his only begotten son. Or else nothing makes any sense, nothing has any meaning, and nothing is really real. Jesus is the source and the center of all reality. Now, in the synagogue there in Pisidian Antioch, where Paul was preaching in Acts 13, everybody did believe that God is. There were no postmodern skeptics or existentialists there. They believed that all of creation belongs to God. They believed that God is sovereign over the course of history. 
In verse 16, Paul addresses the congregation there like this. He says, men of Israel, first of all, and secondly, you who fear God. Most likely, he's identifying two separate groups of people there. The men of Israel were the Jewish men who came to the synagogue to worship the God of the Old Testament scriptures. And you who fear God were Gentile men who had come to faith and who had believed in the one true God of the Old Testament scriptures and so were coming to that synagogue to hear the word of God preached. So all of these people knew, all of these people, Jews and Gentiles, believed that God existed and that God made the world and that God is sovereign over all of history because that's what the Old Testament scriptures reveal and teach. That it is his divine will and purpose that determines where everything all ends up. And see, those are, the, those are among the, the basic and essential questions that everyone is ultimately asking wherever they're coming from in terms of their belief system. Where is everything heading? Right? What, why is everything happening the way that it's happening? What does it all matter? What does it all mean? Ultimately, and here, Paul is preaching and proclaiming the ultimate answer that all of philosophy has failed to find, that every false religion has skewed and twisted and perverted. Paul is saying, if you want to understand anything, you must understand Jesus. It all has to do with the only begotten Son of God. He is the ultimate goal. He is the ultimate end, the ultimate purpose of all of history. And at the center of God's outworking of his purposes in ancient history, which would all lead to the coming of the Son of God, was the purpose or was the history of the people of this one nation of Israel. Why? Why is Israel at the center? See, it's it's not that Jesus is just the center of the Jewish religion or the Christian religion. It's that Jesus is the center of history and at the center of all of God's purposes for history happens to be what he did with this one nation. Well, why? Why this one nation? Because, because they were something special? Because there was something superior in those descendants of Abraham that made them inherently better than any other people group in the world? Were they genetically better? Were they less sinful? No, no, see... The whole point is it had nothing to do with them and everything to do with the pure will of God in spite of them. Look at verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. All of the focus is on God. They were only the chosen nation because God chose them. And if you have in your mind the rest of the history of the Old Testament, which the people in that synagogue did, then you understand that God didn't choose them because of them. He chose them just because he chose them. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. They were no more special. They were no less sinful than any other people. Abraham only had descendants in the first place because God promised them and miraculously supplied them, right? They couldn't have kids. Abraham and Sarah, she was barren. They were old. It was 
physically, earthly speaking, impossible, which is why God chose Abraham to show that it wasn't Abraham, it was his miraculous work in and through Abraham. And then those descendants only ended up in Egypt because of the sovereign orchestration of God who preserved Joseph so that through Joseph, the other sons of Israel could be blessed. You remember that story at the end of the book of Genesis. And then they only became great in Egypt because God made them thrive there and providentially allowed them to multiply in that land. And then they became oppressed. And they only came out of Egypt and into the promised land because God led them out by the sovereign might of his uplifted arm, right? Miracles happened. That's the only reason they came out of Egypt. God defeated Pharaoh. God parted the Red Sea. God made manna come down from heaven. God caused water to come out of rocks in the wilderness. Had nothing to do with their ability. It was God's sovereign action and nothing they could have ever possibly accomplished on their own. It was divine mercy, not human merit. It was, verse 18, God's establishment of them in spite of them, in spite of how he had to put up with them, Paul says. And all of their sin, all their ingratitude, all their constant grumbling against him for 40 long years in the wilderness. And of course, if you know anything about the book of Joshua and the history of how then after the 40 years in the wilderness, they were able to, to make conquest of the whole promised land, all of that happened in spite of their own human inability and simply because the God of all glory was with them, right? The walls of Jericho didn't fall because they yelled so loud that the natural sound waves caused the walls to fall. God made the walls fall. The sun stood still in the sky by God's sovereign power and will, not because of anything they could have done about it. It was his sovereign authority. It was his divine power raising them up, delivering them, establishing them, sustaining them in the land for those 450 years, enduring their sin, their idolatry, their rebellion against him over and over again through the period of the judges, raising up Samuel, putting up with their faithlessness when they demanded a human king instead of loving and trusting God as their sovereign king, giving them Saul who ruled wickedly for 40 years so that they could see from the get-go the inherent problems that come with entrusting yourself to sinful mortal human kings. And then when God had removed Saul, mercifully, graciously, God gave them David to be their king, Paul says in verse 22. Someone who God himself called a man after his own heart who would do his will. Which the Lord himself knows and testifies in the scriptures did not mean that David was a perfect man. Right? By any stretch of the imagination. He was not a perfectly righteous or sinless man. By a long shot, we're going to have a Sunday school class coming up here somewhere in the month of August, maybe the first or second week of August. We're going to begin, and Ted's going to take us through the life of David. You're going to want to be a part of that Sunday school class up in the Fellowship Hall, 9 a.m., before church, and be there and see how, even though David was a man after God's own heart, David was not a perfectly righteous man, but God used him marvelously 
and blessed Israel marvelously through David. So what does it mean if he wasn't a perfect man that he was a man after God's own heart? He was a man after God's own heart as a sinner like the rest of us who by God's grace loved God. Unlike Saul, Saul was entirely devoted to his own glory, to his own esteem, to his own aspirations and ambitions. And David, despite all of his imperfections, sincerely was, by God's grace in him and towards him, devoted to the glory and the will of God. And that meant that David sincerely even though imperfectly, was concerned with the good and the welfare of God's people and not just with his own desires and aspirations and ambitions. And that's what made him a good king. That's how God made him a good king because he cared for the people because he loved their God. Now, do you see Paul's focus here in, in laying all of that history out in a few short verses? You see his emphasis? It is God who sovereignly did all of these things. It didn't all just happen according to the random sequence of impersonal events in the naturalistic universe. That the descendants of Abraham ended up in Egypt and somehow were able to gain their freedom through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. They weren't just somehow able to defeat seven different people groups in the land of Canaan. This little band of Hebrews who had lived as slaves for 400 years. They didn't just manage to conquer and inhabit that whole land for centuries on their own. It was God's sovereign hand that provided and empowered and enabled and accomplished all of those things in that history. And we cannot imagine and we cannot pretend that the eternal almighty God who created this whole universe out of nothing just by the sheer power of his voice, that this God who did that limited or restricted his sovereign orchestration of historical events to the events of this one single nation of Israel. Nope. He is no less sovereign over all of history. He is no less the author of all of history than he was the author of Israel's history. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and he reigns sovereign over all the inhabitants of the earth and does everything according to his perfect will among the hosts of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand. Those were the words of Nebuchadnezzar, not the king of Israel, the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar said those words after God sovereignly humbled him and then mercifully restored him. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized that our God is sovereign over everything. Our God is sovereign over everyone. And life only has meaning if we acknowledge that and bow before him. Our God is the one who declares the end From the beginning. I think you could meditate most of the day on on the complexities of that. 
he declares the end from out of the beginning. It means God in the beginning said, let there be light, and there was light. And as soon as there was, your life was guaranteed. What happens to you tomorrow was guaranteed. The the end of it all is guaranteed from the beginning. You see why? Because God wasn't just sovereign over let there be light. And God wasn't just sovereign over what's going to happen. In order for it to happen from that, everything in between has to be governed by his sovereign will and purposes. Every single instance of history has to be according to God's sovereign will in order for the end to be the end that he has declared. None of it can go off path just a little bit. There are no moments in time that have not been decreed by God and that are not governed and orchestrated by his sovereign and good purposes. And what a comfort that is, right? For those who know it. Because otherwise... Those instances and those moments in our lives that are painful, that are sorrowful, they seem to be meaningless, which is what the unbelieving world wants to imagine. They seem to be meaningless, purposeless. But if you believe they're purposeful and that even the painful things are governed by the sovereign hand of God who is good, then there's comfort, there's meaning, there's hope. See, this is what Nebuchadnezzar came to understand about his own painful, humbling moments for seven years when God humbled him. God ordained all of that for Nebuchadnezzar's good and for God's glory. This is what Joseph knew. This is the truth that he clung to through the brutal circumstances of his life when he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers, subjected to all kinds of abuse at the hands of the Egyptians who bought him. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good from Joseph's own lips. This is the great reality that, that, that Job came to terms with through agonizing suffering. As he fell on his face before God who is sovereign and good, knowing that trusting him means having everything. Though he slay me, Job said, yet will I hope in him. There's no meaning for life otherwise. Asaph, Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. In fact, one day will. But God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. That is the meaning of my life. The sovereign God sits in heaven, does all that he pleases, and all that he pleases is good, even when it doesn't feel very good to us. Because he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver, Malachi 3.3 says. Sovereignly working to judge wickedness, And to mercifully redeem and sanctify, purify his own chosen people. Years ago, I was sharing the gospel with a man in downtown Seattle. And this man got angry at the notion of me talking to him about God and what God has done to bless us in Jesus. 
And he looked me in the face with anger in his eyes and he said, if God is so good, then why would he let my brother-in-law kill my sister and then kill himself? Why did that have to happen? All I could think to say in that moment was something like this. I said, I I don't know why God ordained something as brutally agonizing as that. All I know is that he's the same God who ordained that his own son would suffer, would die, and that in that agony, he would accomplish the greatest good ever the glory of God in in redeeming people like you and me from our sins. So even when we don't understand, God is doing good things through really painful circumstances. And he turned around to walk away and then looked back over his shoulder and he said, you know what? You're the third person in three months who has said that to me. And he said, maybe God is trying to tell me something. Well, maybe, more than maybe. And see, if in God's sovereign purposes, it was all worked together to lead up to that man's eyes being opened and to his trusting God for salvation through Jesus Christ and to his everlasting redemption, to his eternal life, then praise be to God. We don't know, we can't know, we won't always know all of the precise reasons why God in his sovereign goodness ordains, decrees, allows the trials and the sufferings of our lives. But we do know that he does because he has decreed the end from the beginning and everything in between. And we do know that he is good and that his mercies are new every morning and that his faithfulness is great. And we do know that he uses the sovereignly ordained sufferings to refine us, to build our endurance, to build our character, to establish our hope, to train us to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness regardless of our circumstances, and to glorify himself by giving us all sufficient grace and strength to meet our weaknesses in those times of suffering and to train us to seek that from him. And here in Acts 13, Paul, and and Paul certainly knew this truth as well as anyone on the earth could know it, right? Because God had sovereignly used many trials, many sufferings to build Paul's endurance, to grow Paul's character to establish Paul's eternal hope. And here, Paul, full of deep confidence in God's sovereign goodness over all of history, is proclaiming to these Jews in Pisidian Antioch that God has sovereignly orchestrated all of it, all of history, so that every moment of it from the garden all the way down through Moses to Abraham to David to David's descendants, so that it all would perfectly line up so as to lead to the grand and glorious culmination in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God born in human flesh, who was himself betrayed, who was himself crucified, who did suffer himself death on a cross in order to bring eternal salvation and redemption to 
the world. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. So, in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is God the Son, all of God's sovereign purposes for all of history comes to a glorious culmination. He is what God has been doing. And that is true because in Christ Jesus, secondly, all of the divine promises of God are gloriously fulfilled. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The promises of God began all the way back in the book of Genesis with the first two people that ever inhabited this planet, that ever walked on this earth. Immediately after they fell into sin and rebelled against God and did what was right in their own eyes in the Garden of Eden, immediately after that, God promised, saying to Satan, who had deceived Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, note the singular when he's talking about the woman's offspring, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that offspring that God promised was a specific offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise of the seed of a woman. Jesus Christ is is the promised virgin-born child of Isaiah 7, verse 14, whose name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God promised in Isaiah chapter 9, the child who would be our everlasting father, who is our prince of everlasting peace. Jesus Christ is the one that God promised in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Hundreds of years before it ever happened. Who would become the ruler of Israel whose coming is from old, from ancient days. Because God promised it and it will happen when God promises it. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. The promise was made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the seed. He is the promised offspring. He is the descendant of David promised in 2 Samuel 7, the son of God who would reign forever. He is the righteous branch of David's line promised and prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 23. He is, as Matthew says in the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, He is Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of every promise God ever made. In Psalm 110, verse 4, God promised a Messiah who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who would have no beginning and no end, and whose whose priestly work would never cease. And Hebrews 6 and verse 20 confirms that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promised eternal high priest. Centuries before Jesus got on the back of a donkey and rode into Jerusalem, Zechariah prophesied that it would happen in chapter 9 of his prophecy. God would send a king 
who would be both triumphant and would reign, but also would be humble and make sacrifice, mounted on the back of a donkey. Here, Paul is is referencing the promises of God. He, he, He references Malachi's prophecy of a messenger who would come to prepare the way for the great anticipated promised Messiah to come. And Paul says the promised messenger was John the Baptist, who testified of Jesus and then humbled himself before Jesus because John wasn't the one in whom all of the promises of God come to be fulfilled. The greater one that he pointed to was, John said, I'm not even worthy to untie Messiah's sandals. He's the great one. He's the one on the increase. I have to decrease because it's all about him. In verses 26 and 27, Paul addresses everyone who's gathered there at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, the Jewish believers, right, the sons of Abraham, and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he does that in order to make clear that the promised salvation of God applies to all of them. It's been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And now it's been gloriously fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this salvation that has come through him is for all of them, all of the Jews, all of the Gentiles who would believe on the name of Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant who was promised in Isaiah's prophecy. Who even though he existed eternally in the form of God did not In his incarnation in Bethlehem, when he became a human child, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He became obedient as, remember last week, as the begotten son, he became obedient to every aspect of the will of the father, even when that will of God drove him to the cross. He took on human flesh to become despised as Isaiah prophesied, to become rejected of men. Paul says the rulers of Jerusalem, uh, verse 27 and 28, they fulfilled all of the scriptures by condemning and executing the innocent son of God. God promised that this would happen. God prophesied this would happen. Even the method of his death fulfilled prophecy in scripture. Deuteronomy 21, it's written, Cursed is one who hangs on a tree. And Galatians tells us that by being crucified on a cross, Jesus became our curse. He became a curse for us because he bore the curse of God that we deserved in our place for our sin. While he hung on that cross, despised and forsaken, people shook their head at him as Psalm 109 predicted and foresaw that they would. They stared at him. They jeered at him as Psalm 22 predicted they would. His clothing was divided by his executioners as Psalm 22 verse 18 said it would be. They gave him vinegar and gall to drink to quench his thirst just like Psalm 69 prophesied they would. When he was hanging there on the cross, he cried out, The words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he was about to die, he he quoted the words of Psalm 31, verse 5, fulfilling them, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They pierced his side just as Zechariah chapter 12 said they would 
They didn't break his bones because Psalm 34 and verse 20 prophesied that they wouldn't. But they did beat him and mock him and torture him and kill him in the most inhumane and demoralizing way that they knew how to do. Because in the sovereign purposes of God, who is always good, it pleased the Father to crush him. Isaiah 53 verse 10. So that by his wounds we might be healed. He was, Jesus was, in the sovereign goodness of God who declares the end from the beginning in fulfillment of all of the prophecies and promises of God, Jesus was, according to the sovereign will of God, truly a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, so that by his wounds we might be healed. Why? Because God is love. And all we like sheep had gone astray. We all turned every one of us after our own way. And so in all of his divine sovereign justice and mercy and goodness, it pleased the father to crush his only begotten son on the cross. And in so doing, the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, laid the iniquity of us all on him. That's the meaning of history. Redemption, reconciliation to the God from whom we have strayed through the blood of his only begotten son. So the agonizing death of Jesus on that cross, Paul proclaims, was the fulfillment of the sovereignly decreed prophecies and promises of God. All of the eternally decreed purposes of God through every moment of history, even the painful ones, even the, even the agonizingly sorrowful ones, they're all gloriously culminated in all of the things that Jesus did and in all that he is and in all that he will do when he returns. All the divine promises of God are gloriously fulfilled in him. The begotten son who is the suffering servant who came born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, to lay down his life for that which was lost. And so I, you can see, I hope, how masterfully in this sermon of Paul's, he's intertwining these main points that he's making, showing how it is that Jesus' culmination of all of history is the reason why. All of the prophecies and all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in him. Which is why, as we'll see next week, all of the redemptive work of God is accomplished in him and in him alone. They all go together in the perfect will of God, which by definition is the eternal will of God. That's important that we understand there's nothing, there can be nothing that God wills, that God purposes, that God plans, that he hasn't planned from eternity past, right? It's not like God makes a plan somewhere along the timeline that he hadn't conceived of before, because there's nothing that he couldn't have conceived of before, right? There's no plan that God makes that he didn't think to make or will to make or purpose to make since before the foundations of the world, 
by definition because of who he is. The eternally, immutably sovereign, all-knowing God, it's not like he didn't know at some point what he was going to do down the road. Every aspect of his will, every aspect of his knowledge, all of his decrees, all of his promises by which he is sovereign over every moment of history have been known to him since eternity past, which is what guarantees them all, see? Remember that sermon of Peter's back in Acts chapter 2? Where he proclaimed to the rulers of Jerusalem that this Jesus, who was put to death by the hands of wicked men, was put to death according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God didn't just look down the corridors of time and know what those men would do. Ultimately, they did it because of God's eternally predetermined plan. Ultimately, God knew about it because of his eternally predetermined plan. That's how everything is in all of history. It's all been seen by him, known by him, decreed by him eternally since before time, since before creation. And see, that is the foundation of our hope. Because none of his sovereign decrees for any instant of history depend on or can be changed by anything outside of himself. None of his promises depend on or can be changed by or can be thwarted by anything or anyone outside of himself. All of them are guaranteed simply and purely by the faithfulness of the sovereign, almighty, triune God who he is. And here Paul is simply and so profoundly proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that planned and and decreed and orchestrated history And of all of the prophecies and promises of God, he is that because he is the eternally begotten son of God. Who is eternally the very essence of God. Remember last week? See, this is why. He's the only one. God incarnate is the only one. Emmanuel is the only one. God with us is the only one who could positively guarantee that everything would turn out precisely according to the eternal will of God. And that every promise of God would be perfectly and unalterably fulfilled. On the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, Jesus opened the disciples' eyes to see and to understand that all of the scriptures, everything that the eternal God has ever revealed, ultimately spoke of him. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 says that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. And that's why it is through him that we can utter amen to God for the sake of his glory, Paul says. That's one of my favorite, favorite verses in all of the word of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20. All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. And so through him, we can all say amen to God for his glory. What does the word amen mean? It means it's true, right? It means, I agree with this. 
I believe it. I trust it. And so I say, yes, it's true. That's what we mean when we say amen. I have confidence in this. So, so there in 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul is literally saying that we say yes to God as he says yes to us in Christ Jesus who fulfills every promise that God ever made. When we who are sinners meet the holy God in Christ Jesus, what we always hear from him is yes. I love that. God, you have promised to love me with an everlasting love. Here I am in Christ Jesus. God, do you love me? The answer in Christ Jesus is yes. God, I've sinned again. Will you forgive me? The answer in Christ Jesus is yes. God, can you accept a sinner such as me? Yes. God, is your promise to never condemn me? Is it still valid? Yes. God, you've promised to give me the grace and the power that I need. Can I trust you for that promise? Yes. God, is there coming a day when you will show me your glory? Yes. God, after all of the sufferings of my life and in this world, will I know eternity in your presence? Yes. In Christ Jesus, yes. Because the one and only factor that guarantees whether or not the promises of God will be fulfilled is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God, who is God the Son. So they cannot fail, because He cannot fail. He is all the fullness of deity. And at the same time, He became obedient to His Father perfectly and unfailingly and gave his life on the cross. I mean, if any of the promises of God depend on me, on something I can do to guarantee their fulfillment, then I have all kinds of reason to fear. And I have zero reason to expect God to say yes I have zero reason to have confidence that I can say, amen, I believe these promises will be fulfilled if their fulfillment depends somehow on me. Because what I can guarantee is somehow I'll mess it up. But if it's up to the eternally begotten Son of God, in all of the unchangeableness of His divine glory and perfection in all of his unflinching faithfulness as the son to the perfect will of his father, if it's up to him to guarantee that God is going to say yes to all of his promises, then I can say amen to everything that God has promised to me in him. Because in all of the immutable perfection of his divine nature and in all of the devotion of his suffering servanthood as the son of God, he is and he ever will be my redeemer. And so no one will or can ever snatch me out of his hand. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together as we come to the table and then we'll sing to our redeemer. And then next week we will study more in depth his redemption. Let's pray together today. Our God and our Father, we confess with your word and to your glory and with grateful hearts full of awe and wonder and praise.
that Jesus Christ truly is the only begotten Son of God who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And we give you praise for who he is because he is the one in whom all of history has culminated and he is the one in whom all of the promises that you have made are fulfilled and we are the beneficiaries of all of those promises because by your grace alone, in spite of our sin, in spite of ourselves and our inability, you have blessed us in Jesus Christ. You have raised us to newness of life in Jesus Christ. You have forgiven us. You have justified us. You have loved us with an everlasting love and to the uttermost and redeemed us with an eternal redemption in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we ask you this morning for the grace that we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to keep our hearts filled with firm confidence that all of your ways are good, that your sovereign purposes and will that have been in, in action since before the foundations of this world, and that all that it has led to and is culminated in in Jesus Christ, all of it is good. And so, Father, we come asking for the grace that we need to trust that and to be confident of that and to say amen to all of that and to live our lives for the sake of your glory. And so, Father, fill our hearts with gratitude even now as we sing to Jesus, our Redeemer. For it is, it is in his name that we pray and say our amen. Amen. Let's turn to page nine then. And will you stand together? And let's all sing. I will sing of my Redeemer. <laughs>